I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGN News How on Earth for Tuesday, April 26, 2011. It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, climate change and wildfires. And a look at virtual power plants. How information technology could help boost renewables on the grid, cut our carbon footprint, and save us money. Now the news. Brianna, what do we have on ADHD? Tired of the age-old nature versus nurture debate? So are teachers and researchers of ADHD, or Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It turns out that the academic performance of ADHD students is actually determined by a complex combination of nature and nurture. A recent study found that children with ADHD, some skills such as reading, are largely determined by genetics. But in the case of math skills, a child's home and school environment tend to play a bigger role. At this point, researchers can't explain why. Lee Thompson, a professor of psychological sciences at Case Western Reserve University, led the study. He and his colleagues looked specifically at two symptoms associated with ADHD, inattention and hyperactivity. 270 pairs of 10-year-old twins were assessed. Some had signs of severe ADHD, while others showed few or none of the condition's typical behaviors. The researchers evaluated the children's overall behavior, attention, and activity. To measure the relationship between ADHD symptoms and academic abilities, they then looked at similarities between children's skills and their respective genetic and environmental influences. This was the first ADHD behavioral study that looked at genetic and environmental factors alike. This still means both parents and teachers have their work cut out for them, just equally so. The study was published this week in Psychological Science. For KGNU, this is Brianna Draxler. And now, Ted takes us to Wizards and Vampires. Getting lost in a book is a great way to pass an idle afternoon. But according to researchers from the University at Buffalo, reading also fills a deep psychological need for belonging. Tests of 140 undergraduates showed how readers identify with groups in novels. Some students read from the Harry Potter books, which are all about wizards, others from the Twilight series of vampire novels. Then they performed a test where they had to quickly distinguish me words from not me words. In addition to basic pronouns like me, mine, they, theirs, words relating to vampires and wizards were thrown into the mix, like blood, fangs, broomstick, and spell. As the researchers predicted, students who read Harry Potter were quicker to categorize wizard words as me and vampire words as not me. Those who read Twilight showed the opposite effect. In other words, Harry Potter readers became wizards, while those who read Twilight became vampires. Sounds spooky? Perhaps most surprising was the finding that the psychological benefits of real-life group membership, namely improved mood and life satisfaction, were also seen with the fictional groups. But man cannot live on books alone. The effect was stronger for readers who were more group-oriented in real life. So don't give up your social life just yet. If you want to become part of the research team, you can read about the study in an upcoming issue of the journal Psychological Science. For How on Earth, I'm Ted Burnham. We have a couple of calendar items. 
David Grinspoon will lecture on what is life and how should we look for it elsewhere in the universe. That's tonight, 6.30, as part of the Denver Cafe Psy 2 series. It's at Brooklyn's at the Pepsi Center. The Future of Commercial Spaceflight will be presented at a free public lecture this Friday, April 29th, from 7 to 9 p.m. at CU Boulder Campus in Math Room 100. The speakers will be Elon Musk, the founder of both Space SpaceX and Tesla Motors, you know, those expensive electric sports cars, and Alan Stern, leader of the New Horizons mission to Pluto. Seating's limited, so pre-register online at laasp.colorado.edu and click on the special event announcement. You're tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. As we try to push more renewables on the grid and reduce the amount of energy we use, an emerging information technology may help. It's known as the virtual power plant. We have Peter Asmus on the phone from Marin County, California, to help us understand it. Peter is a senior analyst at Pike Research and the author of several books on energy. Peter, welcome to KGNU. Glad to be here. All right. Peter, since the concept of the virtual power plant is probably new to almost all of our listeners, can you take a minute or so and uh, give us a background on, on what it offers? Sure. Well, you know, I think it's, it's a term, obviously, that, that raises a lot of questions, and uh, in some ways rightly so. I think it, the, the main way to think about it is instead of, um, <clears throat> let's say that there's a, a, a energy shortage on a grid in a certain location, let's just say Colorado or somewhere, and uh, instead of firing up what might be a typical fossil fuel plant just for, you know, a short duration to sort of make up that gap, another alternative is if, if we have enough of the, <clears throat> excuse me, smart grid-type technology in place, that you can, you can sort of tap a variety of smaller sources and through um, communication technology sort of stitch them together and to the grid look just like a traditional power plant and whether those resources are a variety of variable renewables or those resources are actually uh, industries or even homes that can reduce their power in real time and you sort of basically, instead of increasing supply, you reduce demand. Okay, so let's talk about the demand. I guess it's also often called a demand response. Um, how would that happen? And, and, I mean, there must be some, in, some incentives given to the industries and homes to uh, turn back their thermostats on a hot day or, or shut back on the big motors at an industry? Yes, and, you know, this is, this is still an emerging, um, emerging concept, and it's got a long ways to go because, you know, in the, in the United States, we have such a complex regulatory system. We have 50 states. We have the federal, state, local government levels, and then we have a bunch of um, sort of grid control areas. But basically, the idea is that you would install um, what would be called automated demand response. Now, we've had programs that you could call, could have called demand response for quite some time, but generally those have been at large industries that basically manually have to turn their equipment off when there is sort of a power shortage and the utility will pay them an extra amount of money. Now, in the past, some of those programs have been attacked because sometimes, you know, they're called upon so rarely. So in some ways, they're viewed as subsidies for large industries because 
they get really cheap rates and then they hardly ever have to respond. But what what the new sort of demand response, I guess you could say demand response 2.0, is is looking at all kinds of customers, including residential customers, and offering them some sort of incentives and price signals. So it's not just positives, it's also negatives. And uh, in the ability to program certain devices that would be automatic, that could reduce demand. For example, maybe your air conditioner is turned down uh, 10 degrees and uh, some of your appliances um, won't even work. That's the other way, the vision of the future that, you know, maybe you want to do your laundry at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, but that's usually a peak power time, at least more in the western states, and that you actually your washer dryer just wouldn't work, you know, at that time. So that's sort of the the view of the future. Now, like I said, this is more of a concept. It is in place in some places, but we still have a long ways to go. Okay. Can the virtual power plant, uh, can it be sort of the energy counterpart of the farm co-op uh, where a, a group of small renewable energy providers band together to get uh, some better value for the product? Yeah, you could you could view it that way. And I guess what I'd like to say is that if you mention the term virtual power plant in Europe, it's really all about supply-side renewables and some of the, the fact the very first virtual power plant apparently in the world was in Germany with, I think it was eight hydroelectric plants. They were all very small. If they operated alone, they didn't really provide that much value to the grid and from a grid uh, reliability perspective. But if they banded together and operated as if they were one hydroelectric plant, they found out that they could um, provide a lot more value because you could sort of coordinate all eight hydroelectric facilities as if they were one power plant. And then Germany took that that idea a step further and created what they called a combined power plant. That's another term, where it was 28 different renewable facilities scattered all throughout the whole country, wind, solar, biomass, um, hydro, and proved that all of Germany could operate on renewable energy, 100% renewable energy, and that's was sort of an R&D effort. Now, to make that a practical reality, obviously that would cost a lot of money. They'd have to phase out coal. They're already phasing out nuclear, but um, that's sort of the most advanced thinking in terms on the supply side. So it's similar to a co-op, but it's, it's more about real-time operations than sort of aggregating resources and sort of sharing them. And, and some we, there's some models called community solar, community wind. Those are That's a slightly different concept, but it, it's in the same camp, I guess, if you will. Okay, uh, Peter, Boulder is considering, uh, considering municipalizing its electrical utility in large part so we can have more renewable power on the grid than our current investor-owned utility is, is willing to give us. Would the virtual power plant technology help a small grid like the one the city of Boulder might have um, put more renewables on, or is this mainly something for the uh, the big players? Oh, no. In fact, um, you know, I'm a big fan of municipalization. I actually learned all about energy from a public utility called the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, which has the unfortunate acronym of SMUD. But um, it closed down a, a nuclear reactor, the only time a citizen vote ever closed down a nuclear reactor in the United States. And then it basically replaced that nuclear energy with solar, wind, and what they called a conservation power plant, which was sort of in some ways uh, an earlier idea, sort of similar to the virtual power plant, although it was more of a, a PR spin saying all of you citizens, owners, ratepayers, 
um, which, of course, in a municipal utility, they're the same people, are contributing to our conservation power plant, which was going to aggregate enough demand reductions to replace the nuclear capacity. Um, in terms of Boulder itself, I know that there was a uh, smart grid city project, which, uh, which was pretty disappointing, and I understand that there were some other issues there uh, with the incumbent utility. And so I would say, yeah, I mean, um, Things like virtual power plants. My other main focus is something called a microgrid. All of these um, these new models are about basically aggregating smaller resources. The question okay. is right but, now, but Peter. Okay. <laughs> tons more to say about uh, about the smart grid. In fact, we should probably have you on on the show again. Uh, unfortunately, we're 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 out of time. Uh, but uh, okay. uh, we'd like to, okay. uh, uh, Peter. Thank you uh, for being on How on Earth. All right. Thank you. Okay. And that All was right. uh, Peter Asmus of Pike Research. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. The Front Range, and Boulder County in particular, has suffered intense and damaging wildfires over the last year. The Left Hand Canyon fire in March was an example of how what we've known as fire season is looking far more perennial. Total water storage in the Rocky Mountains has dropped over the last couple decades, and that means that the evaporation rate is rising while there's less precipitation. This is already a recipe for more frequent and more intense wildfires. So to make sense of these trends and what climate change has to do with them, I met in Boulder recently with Peter Hildebrand. He's an atmospheric scientist and director of the Earth Sciences Directorate at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. Before taking that job at NASA, Dr. Hildebrand worked for 22 years at the National Center for Atmospheric Research here in Boulder. I began by asking him whether it's premature to conclude that the early wildfires that have raged through the Front Range this year are due to climate change. Well, I think that climate change increases the probability that you'll have a season like this, but it doesn't make this season in particular. Uh, I think of climate change as a gradual process that you measure over 10, 20, 30 years, not what happens in one particular year. So this, this is an isolated, unfortunate year when it comes to the fire in the Front Range. Of course, the interior west, this area, is also in the middle of a decade-long drought. So over longer terms, are you looking at decadal trends that point to any particular forces? Well, yes, we are. And one of the things that we've been looking at is if you look at the... Uh, the amount of precipitation alone in the western United States, it's very low. You can go to the big reservoirs in the southwest on the Colorado River, and they're all dry. And uh, the area has also been subject to a lot of evaporation, so that the basic the flammability of the of the ecosystem, all the forests and the like, is very high. So it's uh, a situation in western United States where there is very significant fire danger and this summer may be very troublesome summer as we look forward. So from the from the models, the conceptual models and others, what are you seeing and how do you how do you see that? Well the models basically use a measure of the uh, flammability of the surface and the proximity to various ignition sources such as lightning and humans and when we put our understanding of that 
uh, into the models and look forward over the next decades, we see the potential for significant increase in the fire danger in the western United States because the dryness will increase, the precipitation is moving north, and uh, the lightning will continue to be there and humans will continue to be there. So the situation is not good and fire danger will continue to increase as time goes on. And this, as you alluded to before, I mean, one year, even five years does not, does not point to any particular trend. What can you say, what, what do the models show and what do the actual data show historically that sets precedent for this or shows this is quite an aberration from the norm, the normal variability? Well, you've mentioned two things there. You've mentioned measurements, our observations in the past, and then our models. And we, we basically take our knowledge from the measurements, what's happened, and our understanding of what do you need to have fire, which is a fuel and an ignition source, and you put that into the model with, with uh, measurements you have. When we put all of that together, as I said, we have increased fire danger as time goes on. What we don't understand is the extent to which uh, the fire danger will increase precipitously or just some over the next few decades. But it's clear from the models that the fire danger will be increasing. So I'm wondering also if there's some worrisome positive feedback mechanism at work if in fact we're going to have increased frequency, perhaps increased intensity of fires, that itself, you know, the, the emissions contributing to climate change? Well, having more fires actually uh, affects the climate uh, if you have large and sustained fires over a very large area. I think when we're thinking of just a single fire, even such as the terrible fire that just burned down a few houses, um, that has very little effect on the climate. But if you get into a situation where there are widespread fires over the whole western U.S. or a few decades ago or 10 years ago or so uh, over Indonesia, we could see global change happening because of all of the pollution that was put out by the fire. But the climate change also affects the fire by making it more likely to have the fire occur because of the drying and the lack of precipitation. Then the precipitation becomes just much more flammable and much more likely to be ignited by either lightning or humans. So what keeps you up at night mostly when you think about this topic? I know you're not living in the West right now. You're not living in this exactly fire-prone, but it's not just, not, not just here as well. Well, I can relate back to when I lived uh, in the mountains right near Boulder uh, for most of those 20 years I lived in, in the Front Range. And I was very concerned about uh, fire getting ignited on the hillside, the steep hillside below my house. And because of that, uh, cleared brush and things like that, and also made, that there, made sure that there was good access to the house so that if there was a fire, that the uh, fire department could actually get there safely and, and get out. I see that our understanding of the change in fire uh, as just one realization of the impacts of climate change on human society. Uh, we're not going to stop climate change from happening because we've already gotten it going and it's going to keep going, but there are a lot of things that we can do, uh, individuals and as a society, to slow down the change in the future. And when I think about my grandchildren, I realize these are important things to do. Uh, we can easily cut the use of uh, fossil fuels uh, very, very significantly by driving more efficient cars, by insulating our houses, by heating and cooling less. 
Uh, we can easily do these things and not cut the standard of living. Uh, that's easily demonstrated by the fuel consumption rates in various European countries. So there's a lot of things we can do. Uh, there's a lot of concern that changes like this are going to be way too expensive to be, uh, to be implemented across the country. But actually, when you think of it, uh, they're not that expensive, and the cost of doing nothing can be devastating, and I think a fire burning your house down is a good example. If you can lower the probability of that, then you've done something good that in the long run, in the average, it's going to help people. So it's worth spending some money now to do things later for ourselves, our kids, and our grandchildren. And I'm not suggesting you slap the hand that feeds you, given you're a government scientist, but do you think um, the Obama administration is doing enough? Well, I think that's a tough question. I think that 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 gets into all of the political consider considerations. And I know the administration is doing their, all they can to address these kind of issues, but you have to look at the way our political system works and the fact that all the different political points of view get a chance to be heard in Congress. And that is a very complicated situation, and it's not designed to move really fast. And we just have to have the patience and the perseverance to make sure that we keep pushing on this and make the changes we need to make. And I think they'll happen. And I think that the debate is good. It will happen. They won't happen as fast as we'd like. And we climate scientists will be very worried because of the slowness of it. But that's also expectable. It's a human institution. We'll do our best. I think the administration's doing their best. And you know, even the senators and congressmen I don't agree with, they're doing what they believe to be the best. But in the end, I have every confidence that uh, my grandchildren will have a good place to live and that we will have done the best we could. That was Peter Hildebrand, director of the Earth Sciences Directorate at the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. He was here a couple weeks ago for the Conference on World Affairs and spoke on several occasions about climate change and wildfires. If you want more information or see if you can get an archived copy of any of his talks, you can go to colorado.edu slash CWA. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Joel Parker. Our engineer is Ted Burnham. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Yusu Indoor. Can't listen to How on Earth at your regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the iTunes button to subscribe to your podcast. And if you're a musician, don't forget about our ongoing contest for a new theme song. Check out the contest rules at howonearthradio.org slash contest. Send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom McKinnon.